You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living new man, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello, everybody. This is Mission Lab, episode 84, called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Uh, I'm wanting to launch into just some some thoughts, some brief thoughts, hopefully, on an article I just read. But let me give you a little caveat first, and that is I'm using a different microphone. Uh, there are quick thoughts that come to my mind that I want to like put into podcasts. Um, and sometimes the audio system that we have kind of demotivates me to do that because we have to pull out these clunking microphones, which are really good, but um, sometimes it takes a little more work than I want to put in. And so I know you, dear listener, want to hear more content. So I'm just thinking of you. And uh, that's why I'm using a lesser microphone to try to do this. And we'll look for your feedback. Let me know if it's terrible. Um, or you don't really care about audio quality, you just care about my profound thoughts. Um, But either way, uh, that's what we're up to. And I want to talk about this article, kind of summarize very briefly this article that a friend of mine sent to me. It was recently written by David Brooks and uh, was published in uh, a magazine called The Atlantic. And the title of it was, as I've already mentioned, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. That's a very provocative title. But as I read this really long article, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But as I read this really long article, I started to realize that a lot of it spoke very powerfully to and about sort of some of the burden that we have um, when it comes to, you know, our missional uh, efforts and goals. And anyway, the thesis basically goes like this. David Brooks points out that for much of the world's history, um, life centered around the extended family and or clans and tribes. And that's how people experienced life and that's how they experienced community. There was a strong sense of social cohesiveness and bonding uh, that that was multi-generational, that was, you know, oftentimes, as I said, um, tribal. And obviously there's uh, pros and cons to all of these things. But um, in, in the Western context, for uh, much of its history, in certainly up to the you know in, into the 19th century into the early 20th century, there was still a a strong um, sense of extended family of of kin of of extended um, you know clans that that were uh, more robust and you know so for example within a household you would have grandparents parents children you might have aunts and uncles. You oftentimes lived in the same neighborhood. I can think of my own uh, mother who, growing up, she lived in a neighborhood um, in Massachusetts where 
you know, her aunts and uncles were just one house down. And, you know, so it was like a, it was like its own little community. And there was a strong sense of family ties and connection, which was very good because it allowed for a lot of social support. There was, it was more than just mom and dad who were responsible for raising children. It was grandparents, it was aunts, it was uncles, it was, you know, cousins. So there was a strong, real strong uh, family connection that existed, which was very, very healthy. Now, granted, as David Brooks points out, there were downsides to this. Oftentimes it came um, at the expense of feminine, uh, you know, uh, feminine mobility where, mo- you know, women were expected to just shut their mouth and, you know, do their job in the kitchen. So there was, there was, there was challenges there. Um, you know, also there was just a, a, uh, diminishing of, or maybe not even a recognition of the individual, um, which, you know, as we're going to talk about kind of has its, uh, downsides as well, but the the challenges is that we, you know, we don't want to totally um, overlook the individual for the sake of the collective. But by and large, there was a, a, a pretty um, significant cohesive, you know, family system that was present. And, you know, just speaking in the American context for much of its history, and then things started taking a turn and a shift in the 1940s and 1950s where it moved towards what was dubbed or labeled the nuclear family. And that was simply, you know, mom, dad, and children. And Brooks argues that in the uh, 40s and 50s, this was the golden age of the nuclear family. Um, you know, there was a, a strong cohesiveness in the nuclear family, and uh, it was kind of the golden age, and, and things were going well, and everyone kind of glorified and, and glamorized the nuclear family as a very powerful uh, force in American society and in the West. And then what happened was after the 1950s, he, he basically argues, I think it was 1955 or so, maybe even stretches into the 60s, the nuclear family just started to disintegrate. And uh, this is no, no secret, but, you know, divorce um, skyrocketed, you know, single family homes skyrocketed. Um, so there, there was just a, a, a rapid decline that continues to this day in the nuclear family. And, um, you know, what has happened as well is that, you know, there has been an incredible promotion of, of individualism that has resulted from advanced technology, from, you know, capitalism, um, you know, this pursuit of the American dream. Um, families are just so much more isolated now. And, you know, it's kind of this idea that, um, you know, if, if you have an education, if you have affluence, then you can pursue, you know, your individual dreams. And what he argues is, um, I'll, I'll make a, a quote here, and if you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is this, we've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. 
We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which helped protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger and interconnected extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and the poor. So he argues, of course, that um, the, the smaller nuclear family is better for the affluent because what happens is if you have money um, before where your parents, you know, grandpa and grandma or aunt and uncle would help with the child rearing, would help with the training, would babysit. Now the affluent have outsourced it to tutors, to babysitters, to nannies, to live in, you know, au pairs. And so that, you know, it hasn't been a, a, a big loss for those who have more money, but the nuclear family has really ravaged the working class and the poor who can't afford all of those things. So, you know, it just leads to perpetual and continuous breakdown. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that even the affluent, I think it could be argued, uh, although are, they're experiencing greater degrees of wealth and education, are now experiencing greater degrees of loneliness and disconnection and uh, loss of purpose and, you know, fulfilling social bonds. So Brooks, the, the sum total of all this is that Brooks just argues that uh, by and large society has, um, has felt a great loss as the nuclear family was emphasized to greater degrees and the nuclear family started to break down more and more. And he points out how, for example, um, you know, Elderly people uh, are, are more likely to live by themselves now than they were 100 years ago. I, I can't remember the exact stats. I'd have to go back in the article. But, you know, whereas in 1870, I'm just picking out a number, you know, 75% of, of the elderly population lived with family, something like now today in 2020, like 15% do or something like that. So, you know, it, it's been, you know, the nuclear family has been... Um, you know, the only people it's really benefited from a kind of financial and um, mobility perspective is, you know, adults. Um, it has not benefited, grand, you know, elderly. It has not benefited children. And, you know, we see even more today that there are homes with no children. You know, that's more and more common. Again, it's like some some astronomical number where, you know, uh, 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 you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, um, families with no children was just a microscopic number, and now it's a huge number. And all this has led to um, a greater degree of loneliness and social isolation, which to Brooks, and I think to many people, is, is a problem because, again, it has had a negative effect on society as a whole. Um, and he, he, uh, he makes this point that our culture, he says, is oddly stuck. We want stability and rootedness, but also mobility, 
dynamic capitalism and the liberty to adopt the lifestyle we choose. We want close families, but not the legal, cultural, and sociological constraints that made them possible. Yeah, one story, little story he tells is that he says he often asks African friends who have immigrated to America what most struck them when they arrived. Their answer is always a variation on a theme, the loneliness. It's the empty suburban street in the middle of the day, maybe with a lone mother pushing a baby carriage on the sidewalk, but nobody else around. So he just notes that when people come uh, from societies uh, with large extended families with a, a, a strong sense of social bond among extended clans and tribes, that when they come to America, the loneliness is what is most shocking and troubling and challenging. So he, he cites all of these problems. He goes through uh, all, a lot of statistics about how the nuclear family was a mistake, leading to just more and more loneliness and individualism and fractured the fracturing of society. But then he takes an interesting turn at the end that I was not anticipating, and he points out that to a large extent, um, society has started to adapt to this nuclear family breakdown. And it's adapted in an interesting way. He points out, by the way, that um, sort of the conservative political agenda to restore the nuclear family is a failed pursuit, that it is, um, it's just not going to happen. And it often, again, only benefits those who have the financial resources to do it. So he says it's just not, it's not realistic that that would happen. He says kind of the progressive liberal agenda, which says, oh, everything's, you know, everything goes. It doesn't really matter. You know, who cares if, um, you know, there's single parent homes, if there's, you know, multiple um, partners, you know, coming in and out of families, whatever. It's all good. Everything's good. He says, you know, this doesn't really work. And he says the irony, of course, is that the sort of those who are more progressive-minded, who are the most outspoken um, advocates of, of this kind of philosophy, don't actually practice what they preach. You know, these often come from affluent, educated, liberal uh, people, and they themselves, while they say, oh, it doesn't really matter, you know, they hold to a different standard in their own lives. You know, if, if uh, you know, their own children want this type of arrangement, living in a single home, getting impregnated out of wedlock, they would just be mortified, and they'd say, no, that's not good. So, like, there's just not a, a, uh, a way forward, either in the liberal or the conservative agenda. And Brooks makes this interesting turn where he points out that society is already adapting to this dilemma, and it is coming in the form of a very interesting um, pursuit, and that is what he calls the forged families, F-O-R-G-E-D, forged families. And basically, somewhat out of necessity, Society in America is pushing, is moving toward sort of a chosen extended family uh, arrangement. And he points to uh, many examples where people, out of necessity a lot, and he, he cites especially the economic crisis of 2008, people are now choosing to move back into 
community and extended family, both with their own families and with non-biological families. So he points out that there's an uptick in homes, uh, multi-generational homes that are being built, but they're not like the multi-generational homes of, you know, 50 to 100 years ago where everyone was crammed into the same small little space. Um, They are built in, you know, wider spaces where, you know, grandparents have their own access to, you know, the in-law apartment. Um, Or, uh, you know, parents are, people are now building spaces where they anticipate their millennial children will return after college a lot of times people kind of look down on this arrangement and they, you know, say, oh, you know, those kids who can't, you know, ever grow up and they're, they're delaying adulthood. He's basically arguing that this may not be as bad as we, we make it out to be because of the social advantages that it brings. He also points out, however, that there are non-biological forged families that are, are, are kind of popping up around America where um, single moms, for example, are, are proactively reaching out to other single moms and saying, hey, let's, let's share a home together. Or little, little, little communities that are, that are developing where people are willingly choosing to seek to uh, live in close proximity and community together and share meals together. And where these smaller forged families are raising children together. And he basically argues that this is a somewhat of a return to the benefits of extended family in the past, but maybe not at the expense of the individual. So it's sort of like a both-and arrangement. And this caught my attention because um, he basically is arguing for what, you know, I feel deep down in the depths of my being is what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be this forged extended family. And in this day and age of individualism, which again, there's a place for the individual, but in this day and age of individualism, deep down in the depths of people's hearts, there is a loneliness that I believe is seeking to be remedied through social community. And um, I, I'm aware that, you know, we talk about this. I'm aware that sometimes it sounds better in theory than in practice. And, you know, we, I, I make these broad sweeping statements. And, and yet when, like, in my own context, in my own congregation, I make these statements. And then, you know, everybody disappears on Saturday afternoon after church because nobody wants to spend time with each other. I realize it's complicated and I realize there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But I would submit to you that number one, this is biblically normative and number two, societally wanted. So, you know, we've talked about this before, um, but, you know, I'm thinking of Acts, the book of Acts. At the heart of the Christian message, at the heart of the Christian experiment and what made 
Christianity so incredibly powerful and attractive was what Brooks calls the forged family. I think of Acts chapter 2, for example, um, you know, after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, then those who gladly received his, that is Peter's word, were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together. That's key. They were all together. And they had all things in common. And it goes on to say, and, it sold, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. What the book of Acts paints, this picture it paints, is this idea of the forged family, the extended family, the, the, the social bond that came as a result of shared adversity and shared purpose and mission. And what was so incredible about the early church was that this crossed all, you know, societal and economic and educational uh, boundaries. Um, the rich and the poor were in community together, the, you know, educated and non-educated, the Greek and the Jew, the male and the female, um, the gospel broke down these things that should divide and it, it uh, brought people together. It bonded them together in one big family. You know, I never realized it before, but I'm reading this book uh, per the recommendation of a, a friend of mine um, that it looks at, you know, why early Christianity rose in, in the way that it did. And it basically talks about how, um, you know, this, this, this close social bond was a powerful witness to the to the gospel. And the author points out, I never thought about this before, but it talks about the significance of the kiss, the holy kiss. And Paul, uh, in four or five occasions, reminds his readers, you know, whether it's the Romans or the Corinthians, that they should greet everyone with a holy kiss. And the author points out that the significance of this is that the holy kiss, which was to be shared by everyone in the community, indicated that there were no longer any social, there's no longer any social hierarchy among the community that, that Everybody shared a kiss. It used to, you know, in, 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 in Roman society at that time, you know, you know, you did not kiss those who were of a higher standing, higher, in, in, you know, in the hierarchy. And what Paul is basically saying is that no, 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 we're all equal. We all, we all share in fellowship and communion with one another. And so that was what gave the the most potency to the the. The gospel message, it gave great witness to the gospel was the ability to bring people of various and disparate backgrounds together in community. And it was, it was just very uh, remarkable and, and really um, attractive. Um, and it reminds me of this quote that my my friend Lawrence Byrne, who used to be my chaplain when I was in college, um, 
He puts it this way, and I, I really love this quote. He says, the way we live together is the gospel that we preach. The way we live together is the gospel that we preach. And I just love that idea. As, as we're living in community together, as we are forging these families, as we are choosing, you know, of our own autonomous agency, as we are choosing, uh, as we're choosing to live in community together, life on life, life in community, we give incredible um we give incredible power to, you know, to the gospel. It's the argument. It's the gospel we preach. And I just love that idea. Um, so, you know, what I think God is calling us to do is to pursue greater degrees of togetherness, to greater degrees of family, greater degrees of, to, you know, being in community with one another. And I know that that comes with all sorts of, complications and it's not as simple as, hey, let's all move into the same house together. And, you know, I know that there's also bad forms of community. There's bad forms and abusive forms of, of you know, almost cultish, um, you know, activity with one another. And we need to, you know, be mindful and careful about that. But I think by God's grace, as the gospel penetrates our hearts, and we experience healing that the gospel brings and healing and recovery that these, you know, the, 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 the power of the gospel brings. We can enter into that community in a way that, you know, remedies loneliness, that remedies isolation, that remedies, um, you know, all of the challenges that the kind of the individualism brings. And um, Brooks ends his article by sharing these reflections. He says, I love how he puts this. Americans, and I would say people around the world, are hungering to live in extended and forged families in ways, check out how he puts this, that are new and ancient at the same time. And I, I find that a very interesting way of putting it. On the one hand, it's new, but on the other hand, it's kind of going back to you know, ancient times. He says, this is a significant opportunity, a chance to thicken and broaden family relationships, a chance to allow more adults and children to live and grow under the loving gaze of a dozen pair, pairs of eyes and be caught when they fall by a dozen pairs of arms. I love that image. You know, someone has said it takes a village, and I think we need to understand that as Christians. And he, he notes this, for decades, we have been eating at smaller and smaller tables with fewer and fewer kin. And this is how the last sentence of the article, he says, it's time to find ways to bring back the big tables. And that's a powerful, you know, note to end on. Um, the metaphor of the table, and not just the metaphor, but the reality of the table. And we talk about, you know, in our church, that the great symbol, my local church, the great symbol of what we're trying to do is the table. The table we long for. And, you know, we long for a bigger table that welcomes more and more people in as we fellowship with one another, as we share life and meals together. And by God's grace, I hope that we can experience that. And I, I want to end with a story that just came to my attention yesterday um, that illustrates the power 
the potency of a gospel-centered community um, and a gospel-centered family. And it's, uh, I would say that it's rather imperfect, but it is an illustration of how it can work. Um, over, the la- over, over the weekend, uh, this last weekend, um, <clears throat> we, uh, on Sunday and Monday of this last weekend, and of course, as you're listening, you don't know which weekend I'm talking about, but uh, the point is we went for a ski trip over to Sugarloaf Mountain here in Maine. It's uh, the best ski mountain in Maine, one of the best in New England. I fell in love with it. And my sister and her husband and their four children traveled up from Florida to come and ski with us. My children and and my sister's children skied together for the first time. They had a glorious time. It was beautiful and just awesome. Had great weather and great conditions. Um, and also my mother and my father joined us and my aunt and my uncle. So there was a big group of us. Actually, it's a pretty small group for our family because we usually gather together in groups of 40. Uh, so this was a group of, what, 15 or so? Um, but we all stayed together in Airbnb, um, all under one roof. And, you know, I'm thinking rather nostalgically already just a few days later of sitting around this big, long table where the 15 of us were eating this scrumptious meal one night of chicken pot pie my mother made. The next night, lasagna that Camille made. Just glorious. Sitting, sitting there at the table together, talking, you know, enjoying fellowship. And then going skiing together, which was really powerful and um, really fun and powerful. And so, you know, as is the custom of the day, there were, there were pictures posted on Instagram and Facebook of our time together. And I was visiting yesterday with a friend of mine, um, a woman that uh, we have been leaning into life with, Camille and I have, and um, she recently moved from Europe here to the United States with her family, and uh, she has been, you know, kind of journeying with our church now as well, and uh, it's been really cool, and so, um, you know, we've been, we, we meet together regularly, and anyway, she was telling me that her daughter, who is 18, and is, I would say, um, would call herself an agnostic. Um, we have enjoyed getting to know her daughter a little bit, and uh, you know, we, we she's a really neat young lady. But um, she would call herself agnostic, and is you know more scientifically minded. She's she's gonna she's gonna graduate from high school this year. Um, this family tends to be a little more. Uh, scientific-minded uh, in their orientation rather than, you know, God-oriented. But uh, my friend was telling me that her daughter, as she was scrolling through the pictures of our family um, on Instagram and in Facebook, she said to her mother, you know what, and I, I, this is not, you know, obviously verbatim, but she said, their family seems so happy and they seem to really have a good relational connection. And she said, maybe there's something to this God in church thing if it produces that sort of healthy family dynamic and relationships. And my friend relayed this on to me yesterday and I thought, man, that's a really interesting 
illustration of the power of healthy family. And it was it's not just nuclear family. It was extended family. Us, the 15 of us, living in community together and experiencing the joys that multi-generational extended family can experience as we all live under the banner of the gospel. Now, you know, this young lady, I don't think she's ready to be baptized. I'm not saying that. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. But, and that's not the whole point of it anyway with, with, with them. But you get what I'm saying. There, there's there's a, an effectiveness. There's a power. There's a potency to, as Lawrence Burns said, the way we live together. There's, as, as Ellen White says, she uses the term gainsay. You cannot gainsay a life that is lived selflessly and in an other-centered way. Just as you cannot gainsay the power of the, the the powerful witness that an extended family, whether it is you know biological or it's forged by people who are choosing, like a church, to live in community together, that is the greatest argument in favor of the gospel. Is a loving, gospel-centered community of disciples who are choosing to live in harmony and peace. Now, don't get me wrong, our extended family has its issues. Not to say that we have, you know, awful, terrible issues, but, you know, we're not perfect, but I don't think God requires us to be perfect. So what what God asks us to do, though, is to live in close proximity, close community, sitting at the table together, living out the gospel, welcoming others in, surrounding them so that it takes away their loneliness or diminishes their loneliness so that we can strengthen those bonds of connection, producing healthier and healthier people because that's what happens when you have a very active and strong support system is we become healthier and healthier ourselves, physically, socially, spiritually, emotionally. And I think that's what God wants. So, let us move towards the strength of the forged extended family so that we can experience greater degrees of emotional, spiritual, physical health and we can give greater argument, greater potency to the power of the gospel. So that's my thoughts for today. I hope you've been stimulated and challenged. But let's move, bottom line, let's move in our ecclesiology, which is to say our way we experience church. Let's move to, towards greater and greater degrees of community and connection and authentic life together. Okay? Does that sound like a plan? Thank you for listening. Hopefully you were able to endure my uh, inferior sound equipment usage today. Let me know if it was awful or let me know if it was okay. Thanks for listening, guys. We will be back hopefully soon with another episode. Signing off for today. Thanks for listening. Take care.
Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ogay. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast. Thank you.